Romans. Again and again and again, right? I don't know how much longer we'll be in Romans, but I don't care. Um, we're doing all right. <clears throat> I want to ask you a question. <laughs> I've told part of this story before, I know. I'm recycling a sermon that Bob was talking about there. Um, yeah, different title. I'll, I'll kind of, my father is probably the hardest working person I've ever known in my life. Anybody familiar with a worm gear, how a worm gear works? A, a worm gear works, it just turns and turns and turns and it moves stuff along the worm gear. Well, his nickname in the mines was the worm. They said because he just turns and turns and turns and turns. Well, growing up, I mean, you just I mean, you thought that's how everybody was. So when Dad would have me come out and help him, it usually ended up me watching while Dad worked because that's what Dad did. Anybody, I'm sure some of you have used post hole diggers, right? The, you know, you, you, put, you put it in and you pull it out and you pull the dirt out, right? So Dad took me out, I don't know, I was probably John's age or younger, which I was much smaller than John was when I was John's age. <clears throat> he said, come out and help me. Okay. And he said, grab those post, post hole diggers. I'm, you know, I'm, I don't know what a post hole digger is. And he's like, that thing, so I pick it up and he's like, see if you can, see if you can use those. Okay. <laughs> and if you haven't used them before, it's, it's, like, it's kind of like chopsticks for big people. <laughs> and and, and like, it's, it's real hard, okay? It, it's, it's difficult to wrap your mind around because I'm thinking I want to do this and then this, but if I do this, I'm opening the post hole digger up. You're supposed to push it in, put it down, pull it out, lift the dirt out. So I'm like this tall anyway, and I've got these post hole diggers, you know, <laughs> and I'm doing this number, and they're falling on my head. And what do you think Dad ended up saying? I'll do it. Just, just, just let me do it. Because if he was waiting on me to get it done, we wouldn't have got it done. Well, okay, that was most of my helping Dad stories. You know, it was me watching while Dad did something. <coughs> Fast forward 30 years. And we live beside my parents. And one day my phone rang and my dad called and he said, Hey, would you come over here? I need you to help me do something. Well... You know, I'm thinking post hole diggers, and you know, I'll, I'll watch whatever Dad's doing. <clears throat> well, he was putting together this stand for their TV. They had just bought this new TV in the stand, and he was just clueless. He couldn't do it. And so he ended up watching while I did it, because I read the directions, which Dad would have never done. You know, <clears throat> and I read the directions, and, and he was like, should we put that? I'm like, no, Dad, just, just, just let me do it, okay? And I did, and I put it together. And, and, of course, then he thought I was real smart and real capable because I read the directions. But how many times have you been in a situation where you just, you're wanting somebody to help you or somebody's doing something, and you end up just saying, forget it, I'll do it myself? Ever been there? Anybody ever been there? Anybody with kids ever been there? Vacuum the living room. You know... <laughs> Like, you just, just forget it. I'll do it myself. Wash the dishes. 45 minutes later, there's water in the floor. You know, forget it. I'll just do it myself. Let me ask you a question. Is that going to work with the gospel? Let's think about it. Turn your Bible to Romans chapter 10. And if you don't have a Bible, we'll have it up on the screen. We're going to read Romans 10, 5 through 13 today, and I, I kind of hesitated to take off this big a chunk of Scripture because there's so much in it. And we might revisit it next week. I don't think we will, but we might. But I just, you, you got to take it together. And I want you to think about that, about somebody trying to do something for themselves versus letting somebody do it for them. Uh, if you would stand as we read the Scripture. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... 
and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let me pray. God, we trust the power of Your Word. We trust the power of Your Spirit. We trust the finished work of Jesus Christ to be effective toward us, in us, through us, and for us today. Holy Spirit, teach us so that Jesus would be glorified and the Father would be honored in this place today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. <clears throat> I want to real quick remind you that we came out of, not too long ago, chapter 9. And what was the theme of chapter 9 of Romans? God's sovereignty. God elects. God calls. God is the one who saves. And Bob said that several times while he was sharing there. Who saves? God saves. When did He save? Before the foundation of the world. When did He elect? Before you were born. Before there was ever a thought of you. Before there was ever a thought of the earth. Jesus Christ was the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Amen. God saves. And that was the point of chapter 9. And Paul said that his desire for his brothers according to the flesh is that they would be saved to the point that he wished he could be cut off from Christ himself and be damned if it might save his brothers, which can happen. We saw that in chapter 8. There's no condemnation, no way we could ever be cut off. Then we got back into chapter 10 a couple weeks ago, three weeks ago, and we saw that, man, it looks like there's some responsibility on man's part here to play in this game, that... that the doctrines of the sovereignty of God and the doctrine of the responsibility of man are not incompatible. They're not at odds with one another. But that people got to do something. You got to serve somebody, right? That's what Bob Dylan taught us. So, um, you just got to mention Bob Dylan or Darth Vader in a message, so that uh, so you're relevant. See, I'm so relevant. Of course, Bob Dylan. Never mind. Anyway, so. What we're going to look at today is try to piece together sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. I want to read verses 1 through 4 because they set the stage for what we're going to look at today too. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, the Israelites, ethnic Jews, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Remember that? Gnosis, epinosis. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, and what a huge statement that is, and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now listen, what has happened here, the Father has called the Israelites out to help them in the yard, so to speak. And what has He seen? What did He know beforehand? They can't do this. So I'm going to tell them to sit down and watch me. I'm going to tell them, let me do this. I can do this, you cannot. But they didn't submit to that. So they took their post hole digger somewhere else and started digging their own hole and they started really liking what they were doing. And they were ignorant of the work of God. They were ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. They sat over there and beat themselves to death with the post hole diggers until they got a little bitty hole dug and they're like, check out our hole. Our hole is good. Look how deep it is. Four full inches. And God's over there going, you should have let me do that. Because your hole's not sufficient. And then verse 4, and we'll come back to verse 4 later, but for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Then, verse 5, 4, Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Now look, look, look what our first word is in our verse today. For. It was actually the first word in, in verses 2, 3, and 4 as well. So we've got this for chain again. Four, 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 four. Paul is linking together thoughts and words into a coherent argument. And this argument is airtight. That's what he does. That's how he works. In his progression... He's going back to the Old Testament 
to see what it has to say about righteousness and faith and works and belief in Christ and God's plan and, and, and all this other stuff. For Moses writes. Now, when he talks about Moses writing, he's referring to the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, which are what? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Now, why would he say that Moses writes this? Because Moses wrote it. <laughs> okay? Now, again, this, this Paul guy is just profound. He just blows our minds. Moses actually wrote those five... Now, God had written them, right? On tablets and God... And, well, he may not have written all five books. Moses comes down, he smashes them, and he's mad. And then he goes back up the mountain 40 more days, and he's writing what God says. So he writes five books of the Bible between there and the end of Deuteronomy where Moses dies. Now who wrote the end of Deuteronomy? Probably Joshua because it talks about Moses dying. Moses didn't write about his own death. So. so anyway, Moses writes these first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And Moses wrote those books at the direction of God. So Moses writes and God is speaking through what Moses writes. And all this came about as the Israelites were leaving Egypt and coming into the Promised Land, 11-day journey that took them 40 years. So the quote here, and this is a quote, Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. The quote that he's using is from Leviticus, which is in those five books, right? Leviticus 19.5. I think I put the wrong... Verse. I do. Now what do you do when you're standing in front of people and you got the wrong verse? Admit. You just admit it. I've got the wrong verse. Yeah, won't you look that up? I do need to find out where that's from because it's kind of important. I should that's why you check your slides, people, by the way. Somewhere in Leviticus it says something about that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. And if we find that verse, we'll use it. But trust me, okay? I always trust what the preacher says. There's a quote in Leviticus that says, The person who does the commandments shall live by them. And I apologize for that. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. I've got it written down here, but I don't have the right reference. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. That's what the verse says. So Moses wrote it, but who said it? God Himself. Now, plug that thought, and let me read it again. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So God said that to the Israelites. Now plug that back into our verse here in Romans. For Moses writes about the righteousness of God, the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. So... God, speaking through the written word of Moses, says that if you want to be righteous by keeping the law, then what has to happen? You have to live according to that, to that law, which means that you have to do that all the time. Perfectly. Now, there's no letting up, no slacking, no bad days. Oops, had a bad day. Oops, messed up today. You ever heard somebody say that when they sin? Well, I messed up again. Yeah, just give me a mulligan. Any golfers in here? Let me just reshoot this one, okay? There's no room for error. Or in other words, there's no grace. If you want righteousness based on the law, then the law will determine each and every step you take, every word you speak, and every thought that you have. And if it doesn't, then you don't have righteousness if you're going to trust the law for your righteousness. You either do the commandments or you don't. All the commandments. All the time. Never breaking one. Now, let's go to Romans 10, 6 through 8. We're going to read this little section together. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Now, listen, I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty weird to me. 
If you just casually read it and don't dig in here, it just seems weird. 18.5, Leviticus 18.5 if you're taking notes. Thank you very much. That might have just been a finger hitting the wrong number. Thank you very much. Um, so you're reading along and it says, the word of the law says this, whoever wants to have righteousness shall live by it. But the word of faith says what? The righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. I I don't know about you, but initial reading, I'm going, I don't get it. I don't see what's going on here. The righteousness based on faith. And there's a contrast between the righteousness based on the law and the righteousness based on faith. So the law-based righteousness says, keep the law and be perfect. Break the law and you're not righteous. But the righteousness based on faith says what? The righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Now, what? <laughs> Again, does that make sense to you? Be honest. It's, it's weird. I'm going, I don't understand what's going on here. Well, what's actually going on? Paul is quoting from Deuteronomy here, which is another book from the Torah, the Pentateuch. I want to read for you, and I've got this reference right. I know it is. It's uh, Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 14. Now listen, as we get into this Deuteronomy passage, it actually sets the stage for these three verses from Romans, Romans 10, 6 through 8. So let me read 30, Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 14. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Amen. Now wait a second. Because there's some work to do if we're going to bring the Romans passage and the Deuteronomy passage together and make them work. Because it seems to me like Moses is saying in the Deuteronomy passage, back in the Old Testament, Old Covenant law, that the law is something that's not too hard to keep. Verse 14, so that you can do it. But is the law too hard to keep? Yeah, you bet it is. So what's going on here? Is it too hard to keep? Paul seems to be saying that it's the righteousness based on faith that's not too hard, which is right. Is Moses right or is Paul right? Are both right? Are they referring to the same thing? Now these are questions you should ask yourself as you're reading the Scripture. What's going on? Because these seem like... what, 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 what. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> what, what in the world? This is a clean animal, right? Chicken and clean animal? Anyway, you should be asking yourself, but this doesn't make sense because it doesn't. But it does. So be patient with the Lord. Pray, study, look, Terry, what's going on here? Which you're like, I don't need to do that. You do that for me. <laughs> I'll keep doing it for you. It's okay. To answer my questions, are they saying the same thing? Who's right or both right? The answer is yes and no. First, notice that the beginning of Paul's words in his quote are, Do not say in your heart. Let me go back there. For the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart. That's actually a partial quote from another verse in Deuteronomy. And you're going, what? Does this matter? It does. I promise it does. So he's actually taken another verse from Deuteronomy. It's, it's Deuteronomy 9.4. Let me show you what it says because this is pretty important. Do not say in your heart, this is Deuteronomy, after the Lord your God has thrust them out, the, the nations that you're dispossessing before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess the land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Now Deuteronomy 9 is before or after Deuteronomy 30. 
Okay, so early on in this discourse, Deuteronomy is the second law. Moses is restating the law before they go into the promised land. Deuteronomy, second law is what that means. So earlier on in the discourse, he says, Do not say in your heart, it's because of my righteousness that God's working on my behalf. Then later he says, this word, this law is not too hard for you. So the precedent before is, don't puff up in and of yourself and say it's because of me, it's because of what I've done that God's doing this thing. So when the law comes and God says, here, keep this law, you better keep in mind, don't say in your heart, it's because of me. It's because of my righteousness. The precedent is, it's not because of me. He's actually dispossessing these nations because they were wicked. And that's what Moses wanted the Israelites to know. So Paul starts his statement with the earlier verse from Deuteronomy. And that's important. And again, Paul is really good at this. In stringing these pearls together and showing us this really works into this and this means this and this leads to that. And if you don't see it, you're never going to see it. So... So Moses establishes early in Deuteronomy that God's dealings with Israel were not based on their doing right or their being righteous on their own. And I just think it shows Paul's understanding and mastery of the Old Testament to mash all this together. So when he says, do not say in your heart, he establishes Israel's unrighteousness in and of themselves. And as Jewish readers who had pursued God zealously, we looked at last week, through these holy writings, would have recognized this as well. They're like, he's pulling that from earlier Deuteronomy and then he's plugging it in later in Deuteronomy. They would have seen that. They would have known that because they probably had these five books of the Bible memorized. They're like, that's earlier. That's earlier in the scroll. I remember seeing that. That's... And they knew that. And he knew what he was doing. But then he jumps into the next section where he brings in this reference to Moses referring to the law as something not too hard. So what's up with that? Now, I was going to try to reinvent the wheel here, but I'm just going to read you an excerpt from John Piper's message on this that really just boils it down to the brass tacks. Listen, and I'll tell you when the quote's over. Paul was prepared by the wider and nearer context to see Christ implicit in Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 14. Each time Moses refers to the commandment being easy and near, Paul substitutes Christ. I'm continuing the quote here. Look at verse 6, he says, But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. And in the Old Testament, it actually said to bring the commandment near and make it easy and doable. But Paul says that is to bring Christ down. Now piece that together. Now, that's, take a second. The Old Testament passage says, let me go back there so you can see it. It's not in heaven that you should say who will ascend to heaven for us to bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But Paul says, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down. So the connection is between the law and Christ. Okay, do you got that? That's important. Moses was saying we don't have to go to heaven to bring it, the commandment down. Paul's saying that is to bring Christ down. So the connection between Christ and the law is implicit here. That's what Paul's saying. And so let me keep reading. You've got to get that straight in your head. Again, he puts where the commandment is. Notice carefully, Paul refers to Christ's incarnation to bring Him down. The incarnation was Christ coming down as a person. He came down to earth and to His resurrection to bring Christ up from the dead. Okay? The point is, there is nothing Israel did to make this happen. Paul puts the earthly life of Christ and the risen life of Christ in the place of our obedience to the commandments. That's the key to justification. That's the point of Romans 10.4, which these verses support. If you'll remember, Romans 10.4 was, Christ is the goal or the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes which these verses support, Piper says. Christ is the goal of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. This is the first step in how the commandments are, quote, not too hard for you. They're not too hard for us because they were not too hard for Christ. And God credits His obedience to you. Almost done with the quote. Stay with me. Actually, that is the end of the quote. I'm sorry. 
And that's a quick run by for an overall feel as to how all this plays out. But to boil it down, Paul saw that Moses was referencing finding fulfillment some way in the law. And Paul says the way that the law is fulfilled is how? Through Christ. So their, Israel's ability to keep the law is not what Paul is referencing. And he's saying that Moses could see that he knew that they couldn't keep it. And he told them over and over again. Joshua would tell them later, hey, you know, let's, let's reaffirm this covenant. And they're like, we'll keep all these laws. Joshua said, you can't keep all these laws. So they knew that. It wasn't something that they were like going to fool themselves and say, yeah, we'll keep it. They were just thought, we'll do the best we can. But then Paul says, you should put your faith in God's ability to do what you can't do. What Moses referred to in the law, Paul refers to in Christ. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And what was the purpose of the law? We looked at it last week. The passage in Galatians said that the law was a tutor to lead us to Christ. The purpose of the law was to show us that we can't keep it. The purpose of the law was to show us that we're sinners and we need a Savior. The law's purpose was to show our need for an alien righteousness. Remember that? Being made righteous as a gift from someone else's perfection, namely Christ's. Now, did Moses understand that? Probably not in full. Probably. But the story God was telling back from the Garden of Eden, back from Abraham, was that God was the initiator. God was the healer of what became broken in His creation. The one who makes righteous the unrighteous. But instead of waiting on and trusting in God, Israel took the law and said, I'll do this myself. You're taking too long, God. We'll just do it ourselves. Moses said it wasn't too hard, so I can do it, right? And in doing so, they forfeited their only means for being made righteous. Instead of trusting God to make them righteous, reaching back to last week, they were seeking to establish their own righteousness. And so they missed Christ who could have made them righteous. And that's sad. Look at the end of verse 8 here. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Now here Paul says the word that was being referenced is what? The word of faith that we proclaim. Now this is pretty big too. Notice that Paul is elevating the gospel that he and the apostles were preaching up to the level of God's word in the Old Testament. And what is the word that they were proclaiming? The word of faith. Faith as the means for being made righteous. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. And now faith in Christ is the way that we, all of us, Jew and Gentile, become righteous or right with God. So now the word of faith is God's gospel. The word of faith that we proclaim. Now look at verses 9 and 10 of Romans 10. Because... If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now this connection here is one of the reasons I chose to put all this together, this whole passage. Now look at the connection here to the previous verses and the Old Testament references. Romans 10, 9, and 10 have historically been used as evangelistic verses, and I think that's right. I think it's good. How, do I, how can I be saved? Well, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. I think that's right. I think it's good. They talk about confessing with your mouth, believing in your heart. And verse 10 says, With the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now, have you ever wondered why mouth and heart are used here? Again, we take it out of context there, 10, 9, and 10. Romans 10, 9, and 10, TNT is dynamite to the devil. Believe in your heart, confess with your mouth. Anybody ever heard that? I didn't make that up. I've heard it somewhere before. So, why, why the heart, why the mouth? Why does it say that? For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Well, look back at 10, 6, and 8 again. 6 through 8. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your 
heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is to proclaim the word of faith that we proclaim. So why is Paul referencing the heart and the mouth in 9 and 10? Because he referenced the heart and the mouth back in Deuteronomy. He referenced the heart and mouth in, in verses 6 through 8 there. And it's just a natural chain. Now if you take 9 and 10 out of the context, you're like, okay, you've got to have your heart and you've got to have your mouth right. But he's just referring back to what he said previously. Heart and mouth, they've got to be in place. Do not say in your heart... It's in your, in your mouth and in your heart. You see the heart and mouth references there. So now if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Heart and mouth because that's where the word of faith that they preached impacted. The word of faith impacted the heart as it was implanted there and then worked itself out into the mouths of the ones who found it there. The heart believes and the mouth confesses and the individual is saved. And to me that's just an amazing connection from the Old Testament to the New Testament. An amazing overview of God's plan working from start to finish. And we'll get back to this belief thing in a minute. That'll be in our application time. What does it mean to believe? But now the question has to be, well, who is this for? Well, let's look at the last three verses. Chapter 10, verses 11 through 13. For the Scripture says, Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be Saved. Now we have to hearken way back to chapter 9, like we did at the beginning here, and remember that God's plans and God's purposes are found in the secret counsel of the Godhead from eternity past and into eternity future. And God said He was sovereignly working and electing according to His desire and His perfect will. His elect would be elected by who? One vote. This election has one vote. God casts the ballot. I will elect. But now let me ask you this question. Who is elect? I have no idea. I don't know. You elect? What about... Waitress up here at Cracker Barrel, she elect? I don't know. What about my mom and my daddy? Seems to be there's fruit in their life which would show that they were elect, that they have believed. What about people I don't know? I don't know if they're elect or not. So should I just trust God? Okay, God, you, I'll whisper a little prayer for God save my waitress. Um... I'll take the uh, biscuits and gravy, or uh, yeah, and some extra hash brown casserole. Yeah, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Waitress, is that how we're going to operate? Is that how we should operate? Well, I think we need to work hard in the power of the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel. And the question is, who should we offer the gospel to? In, a verse, in verse 11 to 13, we find these words. Now listen, everyone, all all again and everyone again who will not be put to shame everyone who believes in Jesus is it for Jew or Greek there's no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of who Lord of all and who does he bestow his riches on all who call on him and then he wraps up the passage with for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved now, verse 11 and verse 13 both contain Old Testament references too, from Isaiah 49:23 and Joel 2:26 and 27, which we won't get into today. But you might want to write those references down and look at them later. Again, that's Isaiah 49:23 and Joel 2:26 and 27. We'll actually come back to the Joel reference in a little bit. But the reason I bring them up at all is to show you again Paul's expert use of the Old Testament and 
God's plan and purpose from of old to have people come to him from all over the world and how he spelled it out time and time and time again so that his people would be an evangelistic people, a people who reach out, a people who desire to do what? To impact the ends of the earth until the end of time with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, that mission statement of ours is not in the Bible, but it's definitely implicit there. This has been God's plan and God's purpose from the beginning. And he's been spelling it out for everyone to see. Just take a minute to read these three verses again and take them in. Listen to what is being said here. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, let me ask you questions from that. If, if someone believes in Jesus, will they be put to shame? No, they will not. Is there any difference between Jew and Greek? No, there is not. Jesus is Lord of all, and he bestows his riches on who? All who call on him. And who will be saved? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Let me tell you, church, that's really good news. And it's always been God's plan and purpose. God loves to redeem people and give them the gift of Christ's righteousness based on faith in Christ's work, not based on their own performance. I don't want to sit and beat myself over the head with post hole diggers anymore trying to do my own thing, trying to establish my own righteousness, which is what the Jews had done we saw last week. I can rest in the finished work of Jesus, and God will give me his righteousness if I will simply rest in that. And that is fantastic news. So we've got to ask ourselves, what's the application? How do we apply this broad, overarching invitation to all, to everyone? What do we do with it? In my struggle recently to try to come up with memorable, uh, stick-to-it-in-your-brain type of application points, I've, I've kind of wrestled with this one. And I've, what I've done is I've gotten it down to three Gs. Our application point this morning is three Gs, and those Gs are Get, G-E-T, give, and glory. And let me tell you what that means based on these application points. The first question I would ask is, how do we get righteousness? First G is get. And what does it say? It says that we are called to do what? To believe. All right? Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe, in your heart that God raised him from the dead so we confess and we believe how do we get to be righteous we have to believe for with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved for the scripture says and here's where the believe part really kicks in everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame so how do we get righteousness how do we receive it how do we get it we get it by believing believing in who Jesus is and I asked you earlier in the service, you know, do you believe what you say and do you know that you believe what you say? The question is, what does it mean to believe? The word believe is prevalent in the New Testament. 248 times it's said in the, in the New Testament that we're to believe something or someone believed something. And it's translated as believe, commit unto, commit to one's trust, be committed unto, and to put trust with. So you see that it's not just something in your head, but you're actually putting your what? Trust in something. Uh, the definitions that read here for believe are to think to be true, to be persuaded of, to credit, to place confidence in. To credit, to have confidence in a moral or religious reference. It's used in the New Testament, it says, of the conviction and trust to which a man is impelled. That's I-M-P-E-L-L-E-D, not ran through with a stake. <laughs> Or a man is impelled by a certain inner and higher prerogative and law of soul. One of the definitions actually says to trust in Jesus or God as able to aid either in obtaining or in doing something, which equates to saving faith. Now, belief can also be defined as mere acknowledgement of some fact or event, intellectual faith. And then also it says it can be to entrust a thing to one, to be entrusted with a thing. 
So if we're talking about believing in Jesus, what do you think we're talking about? Are we talking about intellectual assent, believing something in your head? Well, let me give you a warning here. James 2.19 says, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So now let me ask you a question straight up here. Any demons going to be in heaven? No. They're going to suffer forever in eternity in hell because they're demons. They're not redeemed. They're demons. And it says here that the demons believe that God is one. And they shudder. So these demons, who know more than you do, who know more about God than you do, believe. But their belief is not a saving belief. It's an intellectual ascent. It's, it's, it's something that's going on in their head. We talked last week about knowing something, gnosis, and experiential knowledge, which is epinosis. And that, that kind of a, pertains to this as well. You can believe something in your head, but until it has transformed your life. And, and what we're looking for here is putting that faith in Jesus. Putting that faith in Jesus what? In who Jesus is, in what he did, in his righteousness. If I believe in the Lord, then I will be saved. So, it's going to be real important that we understand what it means to believe. It means to put your trust in. To believe in Jesus is to place your trust in him as the Lord, as confirmed by his godness, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to the highest place of authority in the universe, and his constant intercession for us even now. It's not just once in a lifetime you place your faith in Jesus and go on. This is a constant belief, a constant trust in, a constant resting in who he is and what he's done. Now, something about that verse uh, that, we quote, that we quoted earlier, talking about believing, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Everyone who calls on the name, everyone who believes in the Lord will be saved. That's a quote from Joel 2.32. And I want to look at that real quick because it tells us what we must believe in order to be saved. Joel 2.32 says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So who do they got to call on in Joel? They've got to call on the name of the Lord. And that's Yahweh. That's I am that I am. Who, If they ask me who sent me, uh, Moses said, who should I tell them sent me? And God said, tell them, I am sent you. And that's Yahweh, God, the God of the Hebrews, the God of the Jews, the God of creation, the God who is what he is. <clears throat> now, look back at Romans 10:11. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, who is the him in Romans 10:11? It's Jesus, right? But who was the Lord in Joel 2:32? It was Yahweh. It was the grand creator of everything. Now put these together. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God. And if your faith is not in that, if your faith is not in the finished work of a man who was God, not just a God, but the God, if Jesus Christ was not God in the flesh, and if that's not who you've placed your faith in, plain and simple, you're lost. It is imperative that we understand the Godness of Jesus Christ because that is what makes his work valid and effective. It's God himself drawing us to himself through his finished work and giving us his righteousness. The scriptures say that he made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the very righteousness of who? Of God. We might become the very righteousness of God. We have to have God's righteousness, that alien righteousness that we've talked about before, in order for us to be saved. So you have to place your faith in, your trust in the fact that Jesus Christ was God and that God himself took your sins to the cross and bore them upon his body and paid the penalty for them and accepted that payment. So you have to believe to get righteousness. That was the get part. What about the gift part? Who do we give this gift of righteousness to? Can we give this gift of righteousness? And the answer is yes. How do we give righteousness to people? Well, not because of what we do, not because of who we are, but because of what Jesus did. That's what our faith is in. So we do what we share that faith to give it away. And how do we share it? We share it by preaching the gospel. And who did we say we should preach the gospel to? All, everyone, everyone, all. That was what the, the context of the verses just shouted out. It's for everyone who would believe. 
So share that gospel. How do we give righteousness to people? We preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no other way that people will be saved. And we'll talk more about that next week. There's a whole lot next week about how God chose the gospel to be the means of salvation. So hold on to your pants because we'll get there later. But here we want to say how do we give the gift of righteousness to people? We give the gift of righteousness by preaching, which is another G, the gospel. That's all we have to give away. We have the gospel. You remember Don's story from Wednesday? The guy said that the guy was trying to preach doctrine when he should have been preaching the gospel or been vice versa. When should we preach the gospel? All the time. Who should we preach the gospel to? Everybody. Why? Because that's the means that God uses to save people. Now let me ask you this question. Will there be times and places where you can't or maybe even shouldn't preach the gospel? Yes. Absolutely. But those places, those times should be the exception and not the rule. We should be a gospeling people. We should be giving the gospel every chance we get. And I don't speak as one who is constantly walking around sharing the gospel. And I say that to my shame, truthfully. But I want to ask you the question, do you share the gospel? Is it is it a habit, a pattern in your life? Because we have been given we get righteousness. If we are going to give it away, Jesus said, freely you've received, freely you should give. How are we going to give that gift to the people? The only way that we can do it is to preach the gospel. And since we don't know who the elect are, who should we preach the gospel to? We should preach the gospel to every creature, man, woman, child. We should be giving our guts away, there's some more G's, to give the gospel to people. God's people should be marked by those who are sharing the gospel on a consistent, constant, loving basis. So we give the gift of righteousness through the gospel. We get righteousness by believing. We give the gospel through the gospel preaching and the evangelism that we do. And the last G was what? It was glory. We get, we give, and we glory. Now I want you to, I want you to listen to this and I want you to take this in. You have been given as a Christian... A righteousness that is given by grace through faith. And we kind of talk about this as commonplace. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. You've been saved by grace through faith. It's not true in doing. It's a gift of God so that no one should boast. And we say it. We believe it. I believe we believe it. But do we glory in that? And there's the glory part here. I want you to understand that you could have never, ever, ever saved yourself. You could have never ascended up into heaven where Christ is to bring him down. You could have never descended into the dead to bring him back in his resurrection. These are things that you could have never done. You could have never kept the law. You could have never been good enough. You'd have been over there with the post hole diggers, beating your head against the wall, digging a little tiny hole and saying, look at this hole. I like this hole. I made this hole. I did this. So I like this. And it would have never been good enough. Never. But you were saved, or you will be saved, only when the gospel is proclaimed and you respond in faith through belief out of the glorious grace of God expressed through Jesus Christ. You cannot do it yourself. This is an impossible task in and of yourself. So we should glory in the grace of God who offers to us a righteousness, not our own, as a gift of his grace that is to be received through faith in the finished work of Jesus. It was all his work. It was Christ who did the work to come down, to, it, to be the incarnation. It was Christ's work to be resurrected by the power of the Father, by the power of the Spirit, as a stamp of approval upon his work. He did the work, and it's his righteousness that saves us. Not your own, not my own, not our efforts. All the work was done by Christ, and God offers that gift to us in his grace to be received through faith. And listen, the application point here is glory in that. Give glory to God. Rejoice in that. Celebrate that. Shout that to the top of your lungs on the top of the housetops and say, God has freely given me the grace that has saved me. I get grace and I get to give that grace away through the gospel and I get to glory in the finished work of Jesus Christ and accept that 
gift. Glory in God. As a gift from Him, we need to celebrate that more and more. Glory in the finished work of Christ. Get the righteousness that comes through believing in Christ. Give the righteousness to other people as you preach the gospel. And glory in the finished work of God. Let's pray. God, I thank you that in your sovereign plan, I could have never been good enough. I would have never been good enough. And you knew that, and you gave the law to show us that. And then in your sovereignty, God, from before the foundation of the world, you devised a plan wherein you would give me the very righteousness of Christ. God, help us to understand that it's as we believe in him that we are saved. God, help us to understand that we have received this gift and we should give it away as plentiful and as bountiful as we can as we seek to preach the gospel to people as we give this away. And God, give us the wisdom, the love, and the passion for you to glory in who you are and what you've done through this magnificent gospel. We need your help to understand it, God. We need your help to give it away, and we need your help to celebrate it every day of our lives. God, would you help us to do that so that you might get glory in our lives, so that you would be the one who shines through and shows those around us who you are and what you've done. We love you because you loved us first. Now help us to preach that gospel. We ask in Jesus' name, and amen. Now we just stand up and receive a benediction. Uh, this is a good one. I like this so much. This is Hebrews 13, verses 20 and 21. And this benediction says this, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day. Thank you so much.